Hey everyone, welcome to the Steve Hilton Show. In a moment, Susan Shelley will be here. We've got some uh, great stories to get into. Um, the latest on reparations. A really un unbelievable twist in that story. I wasn't expecting this one. We'll get to that in a moment. And another, I mean, I uh, always said another unbelievable story. It's not unbelievable. It's sadly too believable. This is all about collusion between LA County and Adam Schiff in order to censor a media personality from saying things they didn't like on Twitter. It's a crazy story, um, but very typical of the authoritarianism that we're seeing on the left these days. And some good news. Susan's been digging into what you can do. L let, yes, you, anyone in California to do something about the inc ever increasing tax burden and to cut local taxes. We will explain uh, with Susan um, in a moment. And then after that, we got a great conversation about the ongoing saga of the gas stove ban that originated in Berkeley. We've talked about it many times. Instagram doesn't like us talking about it. Remember that they censored us. We have not been deterred. We're going to talk about it again. We've got Brigham McCown on joining us, who knows all about it. He's an energy expert, and he's going to break down for us the latest in the legal battle over Berkeley's gas stove ban, where it might go next, and also how it fits into the overall arguing about energy and climate and all the rest of it. But um, that's all coming up. Let's start with Susan Shelley, um, who's with us. Susan, let's start with, with reparations, because there's, you know, we were going to talk about this anyway, because we had the final report of the California Reparations Task Force just the other day, um, and that there's plenty to digest in there. But then, you know, very soon after the publication, and I did not expect this, Gavin Newsom weighed in apparently two of all places, Fox News Digital, the Fox News website, um, saying, actually, he's not going to pay anything. He's against any reparations at all. He's very interested in the report, and it's all, all very useful, and we're going to look at these systemic issues, blah, blah, blah. But in terms of actual money handed over, no, nothing. Amazing development. Fascinating. Well, this was always a political stunt, because you can't do this. You can't you can't say that California, which was never a slave state, is going to force people who never owned slaves to pay people who never were slaves as reparations for slavery. This was always crazy. So they kind of widened it out to general discrimination and mm -hmm. general oppression and the consequences of laws from long ago. And that's fine as far as it goes, except that everybody else is also eligible for reparations if you're going to widen the definition beyond slavery. Slavery is in its own category. The Constitution says it protects property, but you can't have people be property because that is a complete fault in the structure. So slavery is in a different category. But no one alive today was a slave and no one alive today owns slaves and no one in California owns slaves. So the whole thing was a political stunt. He sets up a commission or there, there was a law that he signed that set up a commission mm -hmm. to do a wish list with no accountability for how anything would be paid or how it would how any of it would work, just how much do you think we were damaged? This is how much money we want, like a jury where there's been already a conviction and they're, now they're assessing civil damages. That's kind of how the, the, the thing was structured. So they come out, they don't want anything else but cash payments. They, they considered other types of reparations, but no, it's going to be cash payments, and that's their report. And I think they settled on $1.2 million per eligible person. It's and then immediately activists said, oh, that's not enough. It should be $2 million per person. So Gavin Newsom, who started all of this, comes in and says, no, there aren't going to be any cash payments, but I support the recommendations of the commission. 
interesting how he's going to try to navigate this. As yeah. you pointed out, he gave it to Fox, which is almost like I don't want my voters to see it. I don't know what he's trying to do, but it's 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 a very delicate balancing act politically. It's really interesting. There's so much to say about it. I, I, the Gavin Newsom response, this thing. I mean, honestly, it was one of those things where I thought, wait, is this a deep fake? Are we now in the realm of artificial intelligence, AI generated fake stories, which we will have to be on the lookout for increasingly going forward? Because it just seems so crazy in terms of. But it, it does speak to one point, which I made every single time that we had a conversation about reparations it has been going on for a while now, this this process, and not just at Cal the California statewide level, but also uh, San Francisco has its own separate process, which is even more um, extreme in its recommendations so far. Um, and the point I always made was if you add up the total amount of money that is being recommended by these groups, it far exceeds the relevant budget. So the final report of the California Reparations Task Force, I think it's uh, it came out, if you add it all up, 800 billion, something like that, which is more than three times the size of the entire state budget. It's completely so it's, it's unworkable. It's literally undeliverable. Now, even if you totally agree with everything they said, it is just impossible to deliver. And so the point that I made, and even more so in, in, in relation to San Francisco, which is an even bigger multiple of, this, of the city's budget. And so I always made this point, which is, it's actually really cruel what they're doing here because they're raising all these expectations um, for people who sincerely participated in the process. And you could see the video of them. They go to the hearings and they say, that, and, 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 you know, we, I'm not in a position to judge any of them for their, uh, their personal stories. But it's certainly true that they sincerely went there and their expectations have been raised and they've all been told to expect you know, in some cases, millions of dollars in the case of San Francisco and other things. And now, and, and I always said, that is a cruel trick because it's not deliverable. So you're raising people's expectations and then you're going to dash them. And mm -hmm. you shouldn't, it's reckless and irresponsible. So politics. That's, that's what's been going on. We'll get, I, I want to get to the Gavin thing in a minute. But just on the substance of what the final recommend, the final task force was, I think it is worth stopping and just having a really kind of thoughtful critique of it because... As you say, it came to $1.2 million total for um, uh, qualifying people. And the, but they, the way they got to that money was broken down. And it was, you know, a num numbers, amount of dollars per year of yeah. being resident in San Francisco as a direct descendant of slavery, of a of, of slave, even though, as you say, California, was, it was, slavery was, was illegal from the founding of the state of California. It was illegal. Um, but... Uh, uh, and I suppose so. Therefore, they they added into the mix, and this is how they actually got to their number. If you actually look at the breakdown of how they calculated the number and, and worked out the dollar amount per year, that's how they did it to get to the aggregate total. The three categories that they used were housing discrimination, um, directed at, at through things like redlining, where um, black residents weren't allowed to buy property in certain areas, um, health disparities and over-policing. Now, I completely agree, and, and we would all agree, that there have been terrible past injustices, not just obviously slavery, um, but in the more recent past, in the 50s and so on, it is true that there was redlining and, and there was racial discrimination in housing and also in access to higher education, et cetera, et cetera. And, 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 and in policing, there's all, these are all absolutely fair uh, critiques of, of past policy and in some cases current policy what's the answer it's to fix those problems and so the answer here 
is to make sure that everyone of every race has 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 access to affordable housing. That means, uh, you know, a set of policy recommendations on housing um, in terms of um, educate. I mean, the, the biggest one, if you want to, people to have real opportunity, equal opportunity, which is what we should want, is to fix the schools. I mean, right now, the public schools in California are the ones entrenching um, systemic racism, as they as they is the term they use, because it's very clear that systematically in California public schools, black kids do much, much worse, not just than white kids, than, than kids of every other race because of the failure of the public schools controlled by the teacher unions um, who control the Democrats. So that's what you want to be looking at. Um, so there's a, a really good policy response to uh, and, and, and to some of these things that everyone would support. Further point, um, and Soledad Asu, who made this point, she's been on this show a lot, and, and, and she made this point in a brilliant article for City Journal magazine, has a special on California, um, and she made the point on my Fox show the other week, which is, um, and speaking as a Latino, she said, well, look, there's loads of uh, past historical injustice that people could have a claim on uh, for reparations. You could look at the, you know, the the the, the um, expulsion of Mexican-Americans, I think it was in the 20s. And the, you could look at the um, internment for, the, for, for Japanese internment. You could look at Asian discrimination in terms of property ownership. Of course, Native Americans <laughs> whose land was taken, etc., um, so and 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 so, but this whole process didn't touch on any of that, and so there's so much wrong with it, and and we've been saying it all along. They've made their final report now. It goes to the legislature, but before it even comes out of the legislature, now let's turn to the Gavin thing. He's saying, oh, as you said, I I agree with the, I, I welcome the recommendations and it's great, <laughs> and we do, but you're not getting a penny, not a dime, nothing. You're getting nothing. There will be no cash payments. Yeah, that didn't take him long at all, did it? The I ink wasn't dry, and he thing. was. It was just a day, a, a day or two, yeah. and he came in, and I can understand. I mean, it's, it is in a way unforgivable because of this raising of expectations and then dashing. I, I have to say, I did not expect it to come like this. I really didn't. I expected it to go to the legislature. I, I guess it still will because that's the process. Mm-hmm. But he's really preempting it. He is. He's saying he won't sign it. So whatever they write, he won't sign anything that has cash payments in it. And if he holds to that position, then essentially he's just insulting everyone on the task force who did all this work. And as you say, it's completely unfair to raise people's expectations and to say, we're going to do this because you've you've been wronged. And then he immediately comes out and says, and we're going to wrong you again. It's just it's really it's politics. It was it yeah, was all for show most... at the beginning, and now he's just got to get out of it because it's unworkable. I've got to say, it is one of the most irresponsible, selfish, reckless, cruel, shallow, cynical moves I've ever seen in politics. To yes, it is. raise everyone ex- everyone's expectations. Yes. To set up a reparations task force to say, yeah, we take this seriously. And, and, we, and we're committed to the process. And then before it's even gone back to the legislature, oh, by the way, I'm not doing it. You're not getting a penny. It's you know, it's just the wrong actually. approach. We have individual justice in this country. This, is, this goes back to English common law. If you personally are wronged, you can get compensation through the courts. But to say that an entire group of people as defined was wronged and everyone is entitled to something in cash from that, is not our system of justice. It's not workable. And it, it can't be calculated. You can't calculate the damage from this kind of thing. 
So as you say, you can you can reform the schools, except that you have to go against the teachers' union. Yeah. Or you can reform different aspects of of housing. Of you you can work on, but we have been working on these things. Yes. And by the way, let's just just throw in there, right? Because it's 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 not well understood. I've been doing a lot of work on housing, and we'll be bringing that to our audience in the in the weeks and months ahead. But one amazing fact about housing that is just not understood about why it's so expensive why a house costs so much in California. If you talk to people who build the houses, a lot of the rules and and, and regulations and the legislation in the state of California mandate something called prevailing wage for Uh the the, um, labor involved. And and it's actually pretty labor intensive building a house, you you know, physically constructing it and then the plumbing and electrician and carpentry. There's a lot of people, skilled labor that goes into it. It's a big component of the cost. And prevailing wage sounds nice you know who would be against that what it actually is is a union wage it's negotiated by the unions and of course the democrats fall over themselves to um to include that and that's mandated you have to use it it can add up to three hundred thousand dollars just that one provision to the cost of building a house which of course adds to the cost of the the, 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 the buying the house. So if you want to look at making housing more affordable, you know, start there with the okay. unions. Again, it's the unions. I'm just in the, in, in the case of the schools, it's the government unions. Here it's 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 um, construction three unions massively inflating the cost. It doesn't happen in any other state. That's mm-hmm. why you heard from people, you know, you can build the exact same house, the identical floor plan fittings, you know, specifications, identical in California and literally just, you know, over the border in Nevada or, or and, and and it costs um the the cost the the differential in cost is not like eight hundred thousand dollars versus two hundred and fifty thousand. Massive true. difference. And the other big factor is where you're allowed to build a new community of homes. Because yep. in California we have this uh, vehicle miles traveled metric in the in CEQA, the main environmental law, which yep. was added a couple of years ago. And so what this does is it essentially says if people have to drive any distance to work, you can't build a community yeah. because it's going to ruin the planet. It's going to destroy the climate. It's, it's going to do something terrible. And so you can't build houses in new communities. All you can do is build apartments on top of train tracks. That's what they want more yeah. of. I mean, it's just anyway. Look, so there's a huge amount of work to do on housing, mm-hmm. if, you know, which would make which would absolutely advance equity. Let's just use use their term. Um Racial equity, racial justice, whatever term you want to use. Um, but this 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 move by Gavin Newsom, just to, I, I mean, what do you think is, I mean, I, it's a little bit early. We only just happened. We, we're taping this the day after, the, you know, it happened the evening, the previous evening. So it's it's hard to see the reaction yet. But I mean, what, well, what it's do you just, think is going to happen? It's just amazingly cynical. Uh, he obviously wants to just get this put behind him so that he doesn't have to have it asked when he's out there campaigning in places like South Carolina. And I don't know. I, I, it's it's extremely cynical. Yes. Um, and and I don't think it's to his credit. I think, as you said, he, no. he's he's really wronging people. He raised expectations. He, he took all the political glory for stepping forward with the task force. And now he's just, oops, never mind, not doing it. And, and I think that's really, just cruel. It's so cynical and shallow and superficial. I think it's one of the worst things I've seen. I really do. Um, all right. Well, well. I mean, I'm, it's going to be very interesting to see the, 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 what blowback he gets, um, actually, from, from, well, certainly, I mean, what an insult, as you say, to the people on the task force to do all this work for him. I mean, by the way, you're right that it was a law that was passed um, 
to set up the commission, which he signed, but he encouraged it. Mm-hmm. I mean, they worked hand in glove, the legislature, and, and, and it was all in the wake of George Floyd, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And he signed the legislation. He could have vetoed it. He could have said, this is not the path. Let's go back and do something that's that's workable. Because yeah. at the end of this task force, we won't have anything that's workable. Yeah, or he could have said, "Look, we get, we you know we we take seriously the legacy of slavery and and racial injustice and la di da, and therefore we are going to look at what specific policy. I mean, you know, even if there's specific policy um, interventions that will particularly help elevate black people in California, you know, like what you, you, there's so much you could have done. But no, it was very clearly set up to work out an amount of money, cash payments." And he likes to be the first to do things. He likes to be photographed with a caption under it that says, California, the first, first state nation. ever to something. Yeah. And sometimes there's a reason that none of the other states have done it, and it's because it's completely unworkable. And yeah. in that, that's what happened here. And it's interesting how, how, how widely um, supported the idea is. I mean, I saw someone on CNN, a commentator, you know, a, a, a black woman, very, very um, thoughtfully making the case. And here's the argument that she put, which was, um, and sincerely held view, which was, well, because uh, someone on the, it was a panel discussion, someone said, well, it's just not, you know, why should a, a current taxpayer who's been, you know, who's an immigrant from somewhere that had no, no connection to slavery whatsoever, um, and just arrived in the country, um, but they, you know, why should they, they be paying from their taxes for this? And her point was because everybody in America, everybody has benefited, is benefiting today from the economy that slavery helped build. The the, the America, the U.S. economy, its preeminence globally was built on slavery, the unpaid labor of slaves. um, And we're all still benefiting from that today. And you can, and, and okay, I'm sure in certain industries places you know in the south for example you could go back and look at the the the, the economic history but like, let's just take california which is the the only state to do this kind of process right now i mean okay so what, so what what's the argument i mean i'm genuinely interested i would have been interested to hear i would have put this question which is let's take the enormous wealth created by silicon valley in recent years just take that um that's the current economy that some people have benefited how is that how does that arise from slavery and or black slavery specifically. I mean, even if you make a point about well, California's opened up through the transcontinental railroad. I think I'm right in saying it was Chinese labor that built that, for example. You know, I mean, I, I just truly, I mean, it's an interesting conversation, and and people, you know, sincerely have that view. Um, well, they're they're entitled to their opinion. I know historians would disagree. Some historians would disagree that the whole country was built on slavery and that we're all still benefiting from slavery. You can argue that, but. You have to remember that there was a civil war and a lot of people died to defeat the Confederacy. And there was a 13th Amendment, which the states ratified to end slavery. And there has been affirmative action in this country since the 1970s, where people have been specifically advantaged because of their race to compensate for past discrimination. Mm -hmm. Are we just going to say none of that happened? And we're starting from scratch since we just discovered that there was slavery and now we have to pay people who are descendants if you can even prove that you're a descendant. And I don't know how you prove who's a descendant and who you don't. I, I don't know I, I don't know what they're going to use to do that or what kind of paperwork. I just know that when they try to verify claims to give out checks for unemployment, that didn't go very well. So I don't well, exactly. know how you verify a check <laughs> for a million dollars going to someone who says, yes, 
I'm a descendant of slavery. And all these people who've been out there making the cases for reparations, I mean, the rug's just been whipped out from under them by Gavin Newsom, of all people. Um, yes. Amazing, amazing. And and, I, and I'll, I'll, I'll like to end on a positive note, which is there is real racial injustice in America today. There really is a massive wealth gap, for example. If you get the average wealth of a black family and a white family, huge difference. So let's address it with policies that actually would make a difference. For example, the education system, for example, access to capital to start and run a business, housing, all these things can be addressed through smart, positive policy today. That's what we need to focus on. Um, let's do this story about, um, I mean, it's not really about Adam Schiff. It involves Adam Schiff. So it's kind of irresistible um, because it gives us a chance to say shifty Schiff. Um, and this is very shifty, the story. I mean, let, we, we can't blame him entirely, but it's amazing. You were just explaining to me the anatomy of it. Yes. Um, and it was it was to do with L.A. County and, and, a, and a prominent radio personality, John Phillips, whose show that I, I do from time to time on L.A. Uh, radio. Tell us what's been going on. Well, last summer, when there was no reason to do it, L.A. County's public health department decided that they needed to impose a mandatory indoor mask mandate again. This was coming up to July 2022. Mm. And there was just outrage. There was outrage everywhere. I remember. And at yeah. the time, the doctors at the, the largest public hospital in Los Angeles County, which has changed its name, but it was LA, LACUSC Medical Center at the time, mm -hmm. the chief medical officer and the top epidemiologist were saying that COVID was like over. It was, there, they had hardly yes, I remember uh, all this. any yeah. cases and they were much less severe and it was just a completely different disease. I remember disease. the press conference of the doctors exactly. where they were standing. I remember it right. very so clearly. Right, so it wasn't a press conference. It was an internal town hall. Oh, that's but right. Yes, some yes, of us yes. got the video of it. Some right. of us got the link and, and made those comments public at the same time that Dr. Barbara Ferrer, who has a PhD in social work and has no medical training whatsoever, she was on television saying, we have to have a mask mandate. We have to, it's so dangerous. We're going into high community spread according to the numbers, according to the CDC. And the real doctors were saying, a mask mandate doesn't work. This was an op-ed by four professionals mm -hmm. in the field, in the uh, Orange County Register and the LA Daily News. They said it's not justified. They're not counting these cases correctly. They're counting people who coincidentally have COVID when they're coming in for heart attacks or something else. And that's not a COVID case, but they're counting it as a COVID case. So there was a lot of controversy. So how did LA County Public Health respond to these criticisms? They tried to get everything censored. They contacted the, the communications guy from LA Public Health. Mm -hmm. His name is Brett Morrow, reached out to Adam Schiff's office in Washington. At the time, he was the chair of the Intelligence Committee, mm -hmm. reached out to his chief of staff, and the chief of staff, Patrick Boland, reached out to Twitter to help the L.A. County Department of Public Health censored this radio host. Now, how did this come to light? It came to light in the discovery in a lawsuit that was filed by a group of parents led by attorney Julie Hamill. She filed a lawsuit to stop the county from imposing this mandate. And they, did, they didn't impose the mandate. They found some way to count the numbers differently. They never exactly said that they were caving, but they caved. And in the discovery of this lawsuit, Emails came out that showed that they tried to censor not just John Phillips, but they reached out to Twitter to censor a group that was posting the same social media posts that the department put up, but it was the, the alternate account was allowing public comments. And the reason for that was LA County Public Health had shut off the ability of the public 
to comment on social media on the public health posts and accounts. And this could be a violation of the First Amendment. So this lawsuit is still going forward. Uh, it's got an October 16th trial date. Some of the causes of action were dismissed by the judge, but that will be appealed after the trial is concluded. So this First Amendment claim is going forward. That's October 16th on all of this censorship. Amazing story. I mean, the anatomy of that. You have an L.A. County health official, com the communications person. Is that right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Saying we can't have this local radio personality tw tweeting criticism of our policy, even right. though, by the way, doctors in the L.A. hospital were, were, were saying the same thing. Right. So what do we do? We need to get him off Twitter. So we're going to go to Adam Schiff. I mean, he's an L.A. congressman, so I can guess, I, you know, there's a sort of connection there, as it were, but still. Um, and to get his office to contact Twitter, it's totally disgraceful. Yes, it is. And in the Twitter files, there was quite a lot of that. Adam Schiff personally was communicating with Twitter's censor group, whatever they called them, the moderation team, yeah. to uh, get so-called misinformation off of Twitter. But we know now that the so-called misinformation was not misinformation. No. It was accurate. And some of what these government departments were putting out was misinformation. Was mis I, 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 I've, I've said it more strongly. I say basically everything that, w that they called misinformation turned out to be true. And everything right. that they said turned out to be misinformation. Uh, openly lying, I think, is the way to put it, because right. they knew. And they and knew. They, I mean, just to take one example of what they them. knew, I mean, Fauci the other day, I mean, I don't want to go about it, it's just exhausting, but I mean, just a tiny example that illustrates the bigger point. He was, the, there's this big, big um, interview with him in the New York Times magazine, I think it was a couple of weekends ago, full of lies and deflection and distortion and misinformation from Fauci. But one particular one that's really egregious was he was... Um, he was being, and actually, to be fair, the journalist did actually ask him some, you know, pretty direct questions and challenged him. It wasn't just a softball interview; it really wasn't. And he put to him that, um, well, you know, you told everyone that the vaccine, the COVID vaccine, would stop transmission, but that you, you, you know, that, that why did you say that um, when it didn't? And wasn't that a mistake? And Fauci had the nerve to say, well, um, we knew that the trials weren't set up to even discover whether the vaccine present, prevented infection or transmission. The trials were only there. Uh, we, the only thing we were, the trials were set up to establish was whether they reduced, the vaccines reduced uh, symptoms, um, of severe symptoms. And uh, yeah, which is what we said at the time. Uh, but at the time, he was literally saying things like, it, it's a dead end to the virus. You won't transmit. You won't. I mean, absolutely clearly saying, not just we think it might or whatever. He was 100% clearly stating that if you get vaccinated, you, you will not transmit. You, cannot you will. They said that. And, 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 he, and they... now he's saying, oh, but why would anyone have thought that? With the trials were never even established. It's total lying. Total lying. It's, it's unbelievable because. People lost their careers in the yeah, military, yeah. in healthcare, in in education, in everywhere that people were required to be vaccinated in order to keep their jobs. Yeah, in order you're, to you're work. Right, actually, we should do people more. People lost just, their jobs over this. We should go back to this, actually, because it's so bad. You know, there's a lot of this stuff where, you know, it's 
I mean, I don't want to say, I'm very confident through all the work that I've done, the research and the conversations I had with real world leading experts in biogenetics uh, and so on, uh, in, 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 um, in, in the development of, in, in, in this field of, of vaccine development and research and so on, that the origin of the virus was in the lab in Wuhan as a result of the specific experiments commissioned by Fauci. Now, I feel very strongly about that based on all the work that I've done. But, you know, it's contested very strongly. And people say, well, even if it came from the lab, it wasn't those experiments. And there's still the possibility it could be in that. It's a debate. Um, same with masks, right? We had that, was it the Cochrane thing the other week, which was, you know, all the studies showed that basically masks, was it their, their number was like 10% effective. Um, but still, there's a debate, you could say, um, about masks, social distancing. Again, I could say, well... We knew from the beginning that this was spread by aerosols, and the whole point of social distancing was it was was to stop uh, disease spread through droplets because the droplets have a weight that means that they fall roughly six feet away, and that's the whole rationale for social distancing. And in fact, that was totally pointless because we knew that it was mainly aerosols which travel much further. Blah blah blah. You go on and on. All these things you can debate. This particular one about the vaccine and transmission and infection, there is no debate whatsoever. It is absolutely clear that Fauci, and now he, we've got him on the record saying it, that they knew that it didn't prevent transmission and infection. In fact, the, 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 the trials themselves were, were not designed to even ask that question. And so, People should be in prison yet, for this. The, yet, despite that, at the time, he, and it's not just, oh, you, you can blame the media for running. He, we have on the record, we have video of him saying, you will not get infected. It is totally outrageous. And exactly as you say, people lost their jobs, their careers, their vocation. When you talk about people like who are firefighters and so on, some of the bravest, most decent people in our country who put themselves mm -hmm. out there at risk to save us, to protect us, and their reputations, their integrity, their career, their vocation, thrown on the scrap heap by Fauci's lies. It is absolutely despicable. And it has decimated many of the workforces in critical professions, such as nursing, where people left, they worked all the way through the pandemic and then, oh, if you don't get this vaccine, you're gonna have to, Yes, you're gonna have to just stay home because you can't work. I mean, talk about reparation. I mean, honestly, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't wanna muddle up too topic. I mean, the, the people, every single person who was they should fired, get all their money back. Need, needs absolutely direct compensation of some kind. Their job back, their money back, whatever their reputations are. An apology. We should really. I'm. I'm. I'm fired up about this. I'll do something. I'm, you, yes, we should. We shouldn't just let this go. It's You're outrageous. Right. Um, where were we? <laughs> Adam Schiff. And the thing. Um, yeah, this terrible. I mean, but it's a symptom, isn't it, of their kind of complete, yes. you know, arrogance and and demented sort of, you know mania to control the conversation and as jay batacharya he always puts it so well he said it's it's this manufactured consensus that's what Precisely. they were trying to achieve which is like oh yes everyone agrees all the doctors agree that whatever and right. and that's why they had to silence and censor and uh, anyone who had who dissented from the group think that's true and it it's not how science it's not how science works science doesn't work with someone who controls government funding putting out the recommendation and then everyone must follow it or they lose their funding. Yeah. That's not science, Yeah, but that's how they want to do it. 
What about the, I mean, the specific story with John Phillips and, and Schiff and all this, what's happening with that now that it's been uncovered? Well, it's, it's too early to say. Uh, the lawsuit goes forward on this First Amendment issue, and there's more discovery coming. More subpoenas are going to be issued for more mail on more censorship requests, because this, this was not known at the time the lawsuit was filed. And so now that they're going to trial in October, there will be more subpoenas for more material to yeah. find out how much more of this there was. Interesting. I'm actually, I'm, I'm on, I think I'm on John's show this week, um, and I'm seeing him next time in LA. So lots it, to talk about. It's it's so unconstitutional for government employees to conspire with a tech platform to censor yes. an American. That is absolutely unconstitutional. If Twitter wanted to say we have terms of service and we won't let anybody talk about mm -hmm. this topic, that would be one thing. But for the government. The county to the federal government to Twitter to reach out to censor someone who is a media host and an opinion journalist, absolutely a violation of the Constitution. It couldn't be any plainer. So does that mean it's illegal? I think so. Because the Constitution is law, right? I mean, is there The Constitution a... is law. And, and perhaps uh, John Phillips has a cause of action to sue over it. I'm not sure. I'm not a lawyer, but it certainly violates the spirit of the First Amendment to have the government conspiring to censor Americans. That the First Amendment says, Congress shall make no law. That's what you that see. I think, it's, I think we need somebody to sue somebody because, because you've got, you know, to, to, to expose all this and to have real accountability for what happened. Mm -hmm. Because you've got it in so many instances now. The, 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 and, and as Michael Schellenberger calls it, you know, the government, was it the disinformation industrial complex? And you have, oh, sorry, censorship. I got that wrong. Censorship, censorship industrial right. complex. Um, and he's quite right. But, I mean, you look at all these different instances, for example, the FBI in relation to um, not just the pandemic, but the um, evidence of Biden corruption in the in the Hunter Biden laptop story. You know, they're, they're, there's all the it, it's it, they were directly telling the tech companies um, to censor things. And they claim it wasn't direct because they but, well, but actually it was all these things. And we've got evidence of it now. And it may also violate the California Constitution, which also protects freedom of speech. So there are two different sets thing. of the the the, the, yes. the, the, Ferrer, yes. the health department and yeah. Right. The lawsuit that Julie Hamill has brought against the LA County Department of Public Health and Barbara Ferrer and others, this this lawsuit is based on California law and the California interesting. Constitution. Interesting. So we'll see. It could be yeah, very it's a interesting. Good story. Um, I mean, a shocking story, but but I mean, the things that they got up to were just sort of unconscionable. So we shouldn't be shocked. Let's end on a positive note. Um, well, I mean, the the, the 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 context isn't positive. It's like the massively increasing tax burden, uh, which everyone has to <laughs> suffer, which is driving people out of the state, along with the other things that are just increasingly expensive housing. You know, we know the list. But you've got an interesting, um, uh, you found out something interesting on local taxes and what we might be able to do about it. Yes, there is a provision in the California Constitution that was put there in 1996 that allows taxpayers to remove or cut a local tax with an initiative. It's in Proposition 218, Section 3, and what you have to do is write an initiative that reverses or reduces a local tax and get signatures, and then if you get enough signatures, that goes on the ballot and voters can vote to end a local tax. And what's interesting about this is that the signature threshold is much lower than for other types of local elections. Mm -hmm. For instance, you probably remember that in the George Gascon recall, the Los Angeles District Attorney recall effort, they needed 566,000 yes. signatures for that countywide election. That's 10% of the registered voters. But for an election 
to remove a tax, it's 5% of the total votes for governor in the last general election in that jurisdiction. So just for just for fun, I did the math on it because we now have those numbers. Yes. And in Los Angeles County, it would take only 119,462, 119,462 valid signatures out of 5.6 million registered voters mm -hmm. to put a countywide tax cut on the ballot. And, what, and you could cut the sales tax, for example. We've had two half, cent, say, half percent sales tax increases for Metro, mm -hmm. for that un completely unusable system that has all these stabbings and terrible drug incidents on mm -hmm. the trains and people can't use them. As a result, what if voters decided we're going to cut those taxes and they put together an initiative and they got 120,000 signatures to put it on the ballot mm -hmm. and they said to Metro, clean it up or else, or else we're going to vote to reduce these taxes and defund it. I think that is some leverage the taxpayers can have. Interesting. And, and what is the what are the other taxes that could, I mean, would, would it affect property taxes could, potentially? It can affect parcel taxes. So those are those extra property taxes that maybe there's something that they say it's for the parks or they say it's for the libraries or they say it's for the police. And they put a parcel tax for the schools, they put an extra property tax on each piece of property in that local jurisdiction, and then nothing improves. And you still have the tax. So you can't do you can property tax those. itself. The property tax itself is a state. That's and state because it now goes, uh, it's, but it's supposed to fund local schools, isn't it? Well, it, but it goes, it's they send it all to Sacramento and it comes back down again. It's complicated. I think it stays in the county, but it's directed by Sacramento as according right. to the local control yeah, funding yeah, formula. Right. Yeah. I think that's right. But the but the extra parcel taxes that are put on the ballot, it's like, well, here, this is going to cost you an extra $125 a year for 30 years to improve parks. And then the parks don't improve. Mm -hmm. You can remove those taxes, those extra property taxes. It won't work for bonds because bonds are a different category where there's debt and it's committed. Mm -hmm. But it will work for sales taxes, parcel taxes, various types of fees and assessments. Local voters can get those removed or reduced if they are not getting the services that they expected to get. And is this always, on a, when you say local, is this always county level? Is that the No, it can be county. It can be city. For instance, the city of Corona passed a 1% sales tax increase, Measure X, passed very narrowly in 2020, raised the sales tax from 7.75% to 8.75%. And they said on the ballot, oh, it's to maintain local 911 emergency, police, fire protection, paramedics address homelessness, but actually that's a general tax. Mm -hmm. It only needed a simple majority, and it passed narrowly. It would take only 2,001 valid signatures in the city of Corona to put that back on the ballot and say, we're done with this, and we want to vote to reduce the sales tax by 1%. Amazing. And there are a number of cities that have done essentially the same thing. In, in 2017, the sales tax went up in the Inland Empire cities of Hemet, Menifee, Riverside, and Temecula, also from 7.75% to 8.75%. Mm -hmm. They said, oh, it's public safety. We have to have money for public safety, but it was a general tax. Mm -hmm. So they only need, even in the city of Riverside, which is large, 3,344 signatures to put a reduction of that tax on the ballot. Amazing. So this is a Prop 218 Section 3 initiative. Yeah, well, no one even knows about this. Seriously. Um, what are you... Um, uh, have there, has there been, and it was in 1996... Mm -hmm. It came in. Has it been used ever? This you know, I'm not sure. I haven't done the research to see how many times it's been tried, but I'm just aware that when you see a a, 
a tax increase on the ballot, and it says this continues indefinitely until ended by voters, this is how you end them. Amazing. And then, and that's what, an what option if, for if people. You're, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, yeah, I'd like to get involved in this, first of all, how do you find out what the local taxes are? Because I think a lot of this stuff is so complicated for people, and they, and they just... It's just, oh, God, you know, I don't even know where to start. Is there a place you can go to, to see, well, what, 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 I mean, where, how do you go, how do you start? You know, I would call the city council or the county board of supervisors representative because really the best, the best use of this is to let them know that you know. Right. And that you expect these services to be funded the way they were promised. And if you call them up, call up your elected officials and speak to the staff members and say you're interested in doing a Proposition 218 Section 3 initiative, and you'll hear silence on the other end of the phone. And just explain that you want to reduce the sales tax in your city, and would they please explain to you how they can go about filing an initiative? Probably you'll have to get that information from the city clerk's office or from the, the county, maybe the county council's office, but somewhere you'll be able to get that information online about how to do an initiative and just really call them up and let them know you're thinking about it, and that yeah. might get your calls returned in the future a lot faster. Amazing. Did you say Section 3 or 13? Section 3. It's section Prop three. 218, Section 3. Yeah. It's in the state constitution. It's it's amazing. This is because this is, you're cause you, cause you, one of the, the hats you wear is the Howard Jarvis. Um, tat, so this is very much, you, you know, like right at the heart of that, right? Yes, exactly. The Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association put that on the ballot in 1996. Yeah. And one of the reasons is because courts had been cutting loopholes into Prop 13, and so Prop 218 cut some of them. And this initiative process is a way for voters to have some power over their elected officials to hold them accountable, which is and a good thing. just while we're talking about this, remind us, we had the conversation before, but remind us what's, what's coming up in terms of a proposition next time to deal with some of those um, yes, the, the, there is a measure called the Taxpayer Protection and Government Accountability Act, which has qualified already for the November 2024 ballot. That will also close some of these loopholes. Special taxes for a dedicated purpose at your local level need a two-thirds vote to pass, according to the Constitution. But there was a court decision that said, well, maybe if it's a citizen's initiative that raises that tax, Maybe that kind of tax doesn't need a two-thirds. Maybe the Constitution doesn't apply at all to that kind of citizen's initiative. This is a very sketchy decision that was just put in as a sort of a, an afterthought mm -hmm. on another topic. But the appellate courts have run with it. And they've said, yeah, that's right. If it's a citizen initiative tax increase, a simple majority is fine. And they've allowed this, even though one of them in San Francisco, it was actually the government officials, the city council members, who stepped out and said, well, now we're citizens. And we're going to do an initiative for this tax increase. If we did it over here in our office, it would need two-thirds. But if we do it on the sidewalk, it only needs 50%. <laughs> and, and they got away with it. Amazing. So there was a tax increase on commercial leases for a special purpose, and it passed 50.8%. And that's the law right now. So the Taxpayer Protection Act will require taxes like that to go back on the ballot to get the yeah, legitimate two-thirds. And if people want it, we, we had a long conversation about it. I mean, you, you summarized it brilliantly there, but... Um, uh, to check out that's on a previous episode, I don't know, a few weeks ago. Um, uh, and that's very, very interesting. And, and, and we'll talk about it more in the run up to it, I'm sure. Um, brilliant. That, that I'm very excited about all of this. There's, this is action, right? So we can, we definitely need to follow up the, the Fauci conversation. I want to do something on that. 
we need accountability for all of that. It's outrageous. And actually, this prop, to, this this point about local tax is very interesting. We can do some really interesting campaigning around that. Actually, um, yes. I can imagine you know some process online where you could kind of make it easy for people to to do this. It's very interesting. We got to keep the. By the way, you know where I, I bet you a lot of this money has gone. Um, the, every time I see something about the salaries of local government officials and, and government officials in California, it's just unbelievable how high, how much they're paid. I mean, there's this sort of myth out there um, that, well, you know, it's public service and you sacrifice your pay for, you know, a government job and maybe you get some security and a higher pension, but you're not paid very much. And that's the that's the compromise. No, I mean, these the salaries are just you know, 300,000, 400,000, you know, for local officials. And part of it is part of it is the pension costs that that's crushing the city budgets because they just get this notice from CalPERS. Yeah, but it's not. This is how much you have to pay. Right. But that's the but the salary, never mind the yeah. pension is is, is right. in these, you know, like, honestly, like, I mean, I don't know what the exact I actually I should know the median income in California. I mean, nationally, I think it's about 65,000. You know, well, you're 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 right that it's crazy. Barbara Ferrer, who we were just discussing at the L.A. County Public Health Department, earns pay and benefits more than six hundred thousand yeah, dollars exactly. a year. And, and, and this now is that's just yeah. indefensible. Local councillors in L.A., um, the city council, that they're on three hundred and something thousand, I believe. The salaries are over two hundred thousand, yeah. and with with the benefits, it gets it's to about three hundred thousand. It's just so this is where the money. Goes. They're so not worth it. <laughs> well, I know. <laughs> just so not worth it. <laughs> it's just. <laughs> Exactly. All right, Susan, thank you very much. That was great, as always. Um, thank you for being with us and sharing all that knowledge and expertise and all the work that you do. Uh, we really thank appreciate you, it. Uh, we'll thank see you. you next time. Um, always enlightening and informative, our conversations with Susan. Um, we do appreciate it. So as promised, uh, we're going to have a conversation now about the ban on gas stoves, where that's all got to, what it all means, how it fits into the climate extremism that they're pushing all around us. And joining us now, a real expert on all of that, Brigham McCown. He's a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute um, and leads the project on American uh, energy security. Brigham, great to see you. I have to ask, um, where are you? It looks amazing. It does, doesn't it? I'm at the uh, exhibition hall of the Berlin Worldwide Pipeline Technology and Innovation Conference. Okay, there you are. That's very good because it, I think right from the get-go, you've established your credentials there. Uh, you are someone who not only knows about energy uh, policy, but you're right in the, in the thick of it there. Um, let's talk, we, we're going to be talking about this um, gas stove ban, and I'm sure we'll go in other directions as well. But let's start with that right. um, because it's something, I, I, it's, it's impossible to sort of make a talk about this without kind of terrible puns that are unintended, but there you are. <laughs> I'm very fired up about it. Um, and the reason is that it seems so inane in the sense that it's a massive annoyance and inconvenience and cost for people that they want to impose with with a pr practically zero benefit to, to anything, as far as I can make out. But um, there's two aspects to this uh, that we'd like to discuss with you today. One is the substance of it, like what is this gas stove ban all about? And, and is it a, you know, is it a good idea? Is it a bad idea? The substance of the actual policy. And second, the process in terms of where we are on it, because uh, it, there's been a lot of back and forth. It started in Berkeley as so many uh, of the of the sort of uh, more extreme and, and um, extreme things, ideas on all policy areas to these days in California, this one in Berkeley. Um, 
and it's now and it's in it's got you know there's a lawsuit and it's in the courts and there was a ruling just now and so on so we've, i think it's 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 hard to keep keep track of all of it let's start with the process just where is this ban right now in terms of the legality well right now the legality is the ban has been tossed by the most liberal appeals court in America that that should tell you something right there the ninth mm-hmm. circuit sitting in San Francisco and the idea that Berkeley came up with was that they knew they probably couldn't do an outright direct ban. So they changed the building code to say, mm-hmm. for all new construction, no more mm-hmm. natural gas hookups. And mm-hmm. the Ninth Circuit was not persuaded and said, look, this, this is a de facto ban on gas. Cities, counties, states can't do that. It's preempted by the federal government. Nice try, but you can't do it. But other cities are doing the same thing. New York is now banning natural gas hookups in taller buildings. The state of New York is trying to pass a law as we speak that bans mm-hmm. a new natural gas hookup. And Steve, it's a terrible idea for many well, reasons. Well, hang on. Let, let's just stick to the process. And then just because it's interesting to me that this this was the first one and it's been tossed out, but it's, it's also in other cities in, in uh, up and down California. I mean, it was there was a real kind of rush to, to copy this law. Um, or ordinate, what is it, a city ordinance or a law? I don't really know yep. what, 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 how you describe it. But what, why did they say that federal law preempted it? Because to me, that's kind of interesting. It's, it's, it's almost like one of those things where I would say, um, I disagree with what you say, but I defend to the death your mm. right to say it was Voltaire. Because I'm a real believer in localism. And, and, and I, my, my sort of instinct is, however crazy this is, if that's what they want to do, they should be able to do it. So what is the federal law yeah. here? The federal law dates back half a century to the Natural mm-hmm. Gas Act. And for commerce, certain areas of commerce, including, let's take trucks or cars mm-hmm. or uh, interstate pipelines, anything that is an interstate nature, meaning it mm-hmm. originates and, and ends in more than one state, typically yep. reserved for the federal government under the Commerce Act, under the Dormant Mm -hmm. Commerce Clause of the Constitution, and in this case, the Natural Gas Act. So the court is saying that this is an area of primacy for the federal government to regulate. And if the federal government wants to ban gas, then fine, but you can't do it at your level. By the way, I don't, uh, I mean, I don't really follow that, to be perfectly honest. I absolutely can see the logic of, you know, a pipeline that goes from one state to another or or whatever, or, or transportation between one state and another. But this is about the actual energy use within a building in a in a locality to me that seems ultra localizable in the sense that what if why should it affect anything federally it, and so what was the basis of the court's decision yeah the, the basis is that uh, there are many parts of commerce including energy products that while we may use them locally they mm-hmm. they affect interstate commerce they are national in their in their origin. The gas didn't originate in Berkeley. The gas didn't probably even originate in California. And so Mm -hmm. the court's theory under this reading is that this is a federal question, not a state or local question. I don't know about that. I mean, to me, it (laughs) seems very, I mean, look, if you wanted to, okay, here's here's a counterexample. Let's just say the federal government um, wanted to do the opposite, to, you know, to, to ban, um, do what actually is being discussed. I mean, you you, you see the uh, what's it called the the Richard Trumpka Jr. operation. What is that? The consumer 
What is that agency that he runs? Yeah, the Product Consumer Safety Commission. Okay. So they, they're the ones that have been pushing it at the federal level and then denying that they ever looked at it. But for example, if they wanted to um, implement a federal ban, then surely we would agree that a state or a city could say, no, in our, no, we want to allow people to continue to use gas. Wouldn't we yeah, see I, it that way? Well, I, under, I understand your point. I think um, the reason we find ourselves in this position, uh, notably of federalism, right, is that this ever-increasing role that the federal government is playing in our lives. And yeah. you know, thus far, the federal government has said, uh, look, if we're regulating something, then states and localities can't regulate it in a way different than we're regulating it. Maybe, maybe uh, they can require more things, maybe as so long as their laws aren't inconsistent with the federal law. But this goes back to the again to the Natural Gas Act, to the Commerce Clause. Mm -hmm. I don't disagree with you that over uh, the decades, uh, uh, the law keeps getting extended and that the interpretation yes. of what is commerce continually gets extended. Uh, there's even a case that says a farmer who uh, uh, who raised grain in his state, and even though that grain stayed in the state, never even left the state, they said, well, that's interstate commerce too, because you're affecting interstate commerce by not putting your grain in interstate commerce. So <laughs> you know, the laws have been stretched. I, I hear your yeah. point, uh, but that's that's I mean, where look, we sit today. Sure. And we'll get on to the substance in a minute. Because, uh, but but the um, uh, just just before we leave the process part of it, I mean, in, in one sense, you could say, well, it's actually not surprising then that the liberal Ninth Circuit um, had this interpretation because they naturally might be more inclined to a, a sort of big government centralizing mindset. And, and want to give the federal government more power, whereas a more conservative-leaning court might be more inclined to the localism argument. Yeah, I, I think that makes logic sense. I think the Ninth Circuit, is being overruled practically 80% of the time on appeal, tends to make it up as it goes along. But, uh, but yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's just uh, finally, on the process, uh, what, what is the status then, because they threw this out for Berkeley, of all these other places that are trying to do it? Are they, do they, does, does this ruling apply to them? Are they now going to be sued? I mean, what's happening here? Yeah, so it's, uh, it's only applicable in the Ninth Circuit. Uh, it's right. certainly uh, persuasive. Does that mean, another... does that, that's the West, isn't it? Yes, it's the West. It's Montana, Idaho, and, and pretty much the West Coast. So does that uh, mean have... all the other places in California that, are, that have to put it on? Uh, uh, it's illegal for them to do this as well, if other cities in California. I mean, L.A.'s done it, I believe. I mean, lots of places in California. Yeah, yeah, it would uh, it would, it would would apply anywhere in the Ninth Circuit. But, um, you know, again, the ruling is pretty new. We'll have to see if uh, the city appeals, make sure that it's final. And then, you know, Berkeley was the, as you pointed out, the hotbed of activity. Their model ordinance has been adopted in, in other cities, as you point out, including New York. So we'll have to see how it affects it. But technically, the ruling only applies in the Ninth Circuit. Got it. All right. Now let's get to the substance of it. I mean, what, let's just be fair to them. What are they, what, what is the case that they make for this? Sure, Steve. Their case is we have a climate crisis that is unfolding before us that uh, is driven by continued usage of hydrocarbons that emit um, ozone-killing materials, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, 
carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Natural gas is predominantly made of methane, which is a greenhouse gas. So in their view, if you stop using hydrocarbons such as natural gas, we can save the planet, uh, you know, and uh, uh, the environmental impacts will be decreased. We'll have cleaner air. Everything will be great. So it's part of the phase out of fossil fuels, which they want, the decarbonization, as they call it, of the, of the economy. But they dress this up, don't they? Uh, I mean, all the arguments I see them making are about, I mean, we've just had, by the way, just to add into the mix, is it 10 attorneys general from, from democratic states have just um, put something out there on this? I, I can't remember what their um, policy is, but it's not just, so this is like a real movement towards this. Um, they have argued, made the case in terms of child health, asthma, all that kind of stuff. Right. And this is exactly what we heard from Trumpka when he tossed up the trial balloon. And uh, the report that was used by these entities, uh, the authors had to come back and, and actually clarify their position and say, we're not necessarily suggesting that uh, usage of natural gas uh, for cooking in one's homes creates asthma. Uh, especially among children or other uh, sensitive aerations. So, you know, that story has been walked back a little bit. But the bottom line is they're using any argument necessary to ban uh, fossil fuels, and in this case, uh, wanting to, to ban natural gas. Also, Department of Energy is coming out with new efficiency standards that mm -hmm. will be a de facto ban on a lot of natural gas being used for heating in the country because the furnaces won't pass the efficiency standard. So that's is, has that been introduced? It's uh, currently in process. They're working their way through your dishwasher first, then uh, they're going to come to uh, uh, to gas powered uh, heating. And the idea yeah. there is to to ask you to uh, purchase a heat pump or an electric heat pump to move off of natural gas. Yeah, and I'm just checking the story to 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 make sure we're accurate. So we have a coalition of that I mentioned earlier, 11 Democratic attorneys general wrote to fed federal regulators on Monday this week, um, beginning of, um, we're at, what are we now, May the 10th we're speaking, so a couple of days ago, urging them to take action, cracking down on natural gas-powered stovetops, here we are, over concerns about their impact on respiratory health. Yeah. So suddenly they've discovered this this method of cooking that we've been familiar with. I mean, when, when was the first gas stove introduced? Uh, a very long time ago, back uh, as early as the uh, the 1800s, where we used wooden pipelines to carry gas into our homes. And you know, that, Steve, you bring it up an interesting point because I also teach classes at a at a university where a lot of the students are pretty liberal, and mm -hmm. I try uh, to just tell both sides of the story as you do. And I was shocked and amazed, almost uniformly, every student said, "You can't ban natural gas for cooking." I found that very interesting. Um, why? Why? Because they just said it's just too crazy. I mean, what was the? <laughs> well, the rationale was that uh, cooking with natural gas is a choice. You shouldn't take it away. If uh, yep. you want to cook on electric, fine. That cooking with natural gas actually is better. It's easier to cook. Uh, one student said, "Show me a single chef show where they cook with electricity." Doesn't happen. And so it's interesting the mindset. Uh, I think this is a losing argument for the left. I do. And both too. on yeah. perception and on policy. But it's very interesting how the ratchet moves in an extreme direction so easily because 
once, I mean, I, I, uh, sorry, I am, I really am very fired up about it because I, I love to cook. It's one of my great, you know, joys, um, as well as a chore, you know, let's be honest. Um, I, I cook for our family. I've run a restaurant. I started restaurants in England, so I'm very interested in food. So it's particularly, uh, you know, meaningful to me personally, as well as from a policy point of view, it's just ridiculous. Um, but it's interesting that the minute that, that, they it became a story and some of us spoke out against it suddenly the group think the establishment group think was all all for this so, so five minutes ago no one had ever heard of banning gas stoves and it would have seemed mad but like the minute that you say it and then everyone goes on about it on the other side it's it's now i mean they literally described it on the left as it, it the, those of us who are trying to save as it were gas stoves it's part of our culture war so I've literally heard it described as the latest in the Republican culture war is defending gas stoves. I mean, what a crazy world that, that actually they're the ones it's. And, and I, and I explained it in this sort of classic dynamic you get these days, which is they propose something extreme. Um, normal people say, hang on a second, that sounds a bit mad. And then you're the one that's called extreme for opposing the craziness. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, they're projecting. Absolutely, it's uh, it's a bit of gaslighting as well. I think, but gaslighting. You know, the, there we the, are. Very good. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I think the point is, and what a lot of people are missing. Let's just say for a day we could turn off natural gas everywhere. Mm -hmm. Well, then we're actually likely to raise the carbon intensity of the electricity you use because mm -hmm. we don't have enough base load power to transition all of this to electricity. So we're going to use even more fossil fuels, more emitting fossil fuels than natural gas to make up the difference. So it's- Why is that inevitable? It's, Just explain that. Well, because we still have issues with the intermittency of lower carbon fuel sources, i.e. renewables as, as, mm -hmm. uh, as they're grouped. We can't seem to permit a new nuclear reactor uh, yep. very easily or quickly in the United States. Natural gas is currently used as the number one feedstock to produce electricity, replacing mm -hmm. coal. This is something yes. that the Europeans over here are amazed by because we've reduced our GHG emissions more than any other country, including That's Germany, right. without spending a dime just by tweaking our energy switching mix. To switching from coal to natural gas for electricity right. generation has reduced yes. our carbon emissions substantially. I substantially. Think. I think, isn't it right that we're the only country, only major country um, where that where that happened? Certainly more uh, than I think that's You're right about Germany. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you're right. Uh, you know, despite trillions of dollars in investment by the EU and by countries like Germany, and as we all know, they were caught very flat-footed, uh, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, because once you pull real fossil fuel away, uh, the entire economy here practically collapsed overnight. Because nat natural gas is, in, in, the, in the greenhouse gas sense, is cleaner than coal. Is that right? I mean, that's what's always I, said. I, I just want you, as an expert, yeah. would you agree with that? Yeah. I, I, I would. It reduces uh, emissions by approximately 50%. Right. And so what's the... I mean, what's the what's the sort of future of this issue, do you think? I mean, there really seem to be, it, it seems the, the pressure from the left on this ban seems to be increasing, not decreasing. Yeah, it does because, um, you know, it makes poor policy. It sounds cool. It's, 
as you know with a restaurant, once a brand new restaurant opens, everybody flocks to it for a while. It's the cool thing to do. The issue is that you can't get from point A to point B under this policy. This is the only policy, energy policy, where we want to allegedly transition. We don't know how long it'll take. We don't know if we can get there. And we have no idea how much it's going to cost. This is madness. No one else would run a policy this way, nor should they. But the EU is 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 even more. I mean, it's you know they're ta- what they're, they're decarbon. I mean, they keep talking about decarbonization. I mentioned this in a previous show. I mean, that's. Uh, I mean, it's literally impossible, isn't it? It's uh, it's pretty problematic, and that's what we're discussing here. Even leading European energy experts are acknowledging that the path to a carbon-free environment is fifty-plus years away. It's not a couple of years away. Um, it's just simply not possible to get there, even if you spend uh, a ton of money. And and you may have heard a congressional hearing a week ago where the deputy secretary of DOE was asked, uh, how much is this actually going to help if you spend $50 trillion? And he couldn't answer the question because, because nobody has actually planned this out from a business model. And it fe- I mean, is there, has, has there been any estimate made of the, uh, carbon emission reduction impact of banning gas stoves has anyone is that in any of the communication around this i mean i know it's part of the general message i mean as as we were discussing earlier they they claim it's about child health um but then you know the real agenda seems to be in terms of carbon emissions but do they ever present any kind of carbon saving as a result of doing this, or is it just assumed to be good because it's another fossil fuel that we're phasing out? Exactly. It's assumed to be good for the benefit. And this deputy secretary last week said, well, we have to do this so other countries will follow. You know, the <laughs> rationale that America needs to jump off the bridge first, yes. uh, you know, is the rationale. And if you look for studies, how much will decarbonization cost? What does a carbon-free economy look like? What does a hydrogen economy look like? Well, we don't have price tags because nobody has put this into black and white because, A, it's very difficult to forecast, and B, uh, the cost, frankly, in my opinion, would well outweigh the benefits. But we do know if we could even transition to hydrogen as a fuel source for electricity, you're going to pay in today's dollars three to four times what you currently pay for electricity. These are things they don't want to talk about. They just want to mm-hmm. say we have to do this for the good of the planet. And they don't want to talk about uh, yeah. the fact that China is admitting more than the rest of the industrial world. Well, they're building new coal-fired power stations. Every week. Um, can we talk about hydrogen? We don't talk about it. as I, I noticed that it's much more in the conversation in Europe than it is in America, the hydrogen economy as, as it's described. I, it's, I, what's the, just give us an overview of hydrogen in this energy um, policy mix. Sure. So the idea is that uh, we can convert hydrogen into a fuel source to uh, make heat to then make electricity because electricity is made by uh, boiling water that then turns large turbines. And whether that fuel source is coal or electricity or nuclear, same basic theory. So the idea is let's use hydrogen, but we have to do, we have to strip other atoms out of hydrogen because hydrogen is a hydro carbon, it's attached to other things. So we strip the carbon out of the hydrogen atom and then mm-hmm. use the hydrogen atom as a fuel source, but it's not very simple to do. 
and the technology just isn't there yet. And I think this leads to the larger issue that, you know, our fuel mix is going to change over time, but forcing it to change overnight when we don't have the proper technology, mm -hmm. uh, we don't have a budget for doing so, is not the best path forward because, frankly, you know, this goes to energy security, it goes to economic vibrance, it goes to our way of life. Uh, so well, let's talk, I just talk about hydrogen. I'm interested this. in this. So you've got, so hydrogen, like people, I mean, I'm just, I, mean, I barely remember all this from school, but like, so it's, so H, the H in H2O in water, that's hydrogen, right? Correct. So is that then raw material for making hydrogen, for isolating hydrogen as a gas? Do you just basically convert water? You you can uh, you can convert other materials. Uh, you're you're exceeding my scientific expertise, but I know that hydrogen like alone. The blind leading the blind. This, then we're in this, real trouble. This, yeah, this, this, uh, a hydrogen pure hydrogen does not naturally occur. Right. Uh, That's what I thought. Here it, it it does in in other places, but we have to strip something else out of it. Mm -hmm. to then turn it into pure hydrogen. Yes, that's Which correct. Which then can be used to, to heat the water to generate electricity. And people talk about green hydrogen. As I understand it, that is hydrogen that's been prepared for, for use using renewable energy. Correct. Or organic methods, um, um, animal uh, landfills, other pieces. Green mm -hmm. supposedly refers to hydrogen that is produced without the assistance of hydrocarbons. Right. Okay. And then I one last thing on hydrogen. I mean, you can use, there are hydrogen vehicles you see on the streets. Uh, I mean, I don't know if we have it. I mean, you certainly see them around the, in Europe where it says hydrogen powered bus or whatever. So, so, mm -hmm. so that, how does hydrogen make a, you know, fuel a bus? Well, you have to you have to substantially compress it, and um, you know hydrogen can be volatile, as as we know from history. With I was going to say, isn't this airships. what those blimps were? The, the airships. It it is. Uh, you know, the most so famous the would same, be the Hindenburg. Basically. Hindenburg. Okay. It so... is. It is the same. Uh, although people argue there are ways to strip the volatility out of it, but it remains uh, very much um, uh, uh, in a, a research capacity at this time. Yeah, I mean, the, the infuriating thing, I mean, I remember seeing a demonstration where they fueled a car with hydrogen and there was, and and, and it produced the exhaust, the, whatever, the, the waste that came out was water and someone kind of put uh -huh. a glass underneath and sort of drank the water and it was this great demonstration of this green future. I mean, that was, that was, must have been 20 years ago um, and we're nowhere near, um, I mean, a mass um, uh, deployment of hydrogen in our economy. That's right. And really, the thought is that hydrogen, if it is to be economically viable, has to be used in large-scale electric production, right. uh, not, not really by the end user. And, and that's, those are some of the debates occurring here right now. And right. to your point, the tipping point for technology takes much longer than I think we tend to think it does. Well, that's what I always say, which is that, you know, we, we can be for an energy transition to cleaner energy. Who doesn't want cleaner energy? That's good. But not in the, but right. but in a responsible way, and the, and the kind of formula I always use is we we want affordable, reliable energy that's as green as possible, not um, green energy whatever the cost, which is what they seem to be pushing now. Yeah, because it uh, it undermines. I, I mentioned earlier it undermines our security. That's because if you can't afford the energy, 
you will see a deindustrialization. You'll see job loss. Uh, Europe is already seeing uh, industries move out of the EU because of the high fuel costs. So, you know, it's great to reduce our emissions, and we can do that over time if we keep in mind that energy has to still be affordable. Well, exactly. Um, but they don't care because they're zealots. And so it's, it's like, whatever, you know, that's why, that's why this gas stove ban, I think is such an interesting example because it achieves, I mean, in its own terms, let's just go, you know, back to where we started and end with this on the, on the gas stove ban that's been halted. But if, I mean, on, on, on its own terms, it barely does anything in terms of emissions. That's correct, isn't it? That is true. Yeah, it really, it really doesn't. But they're pushing it anyway because they're zealots, and 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 they're not going to let the court stop them. And we just saw this story about the, the state attorneys general, and they're pushing it. And there's more, you know, more coming out of that Richard Trumpka Jr. outfit in Washington, the Consumer Protection, whatever it is. Uh, you know, they 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 are pushing it. And then they deny it because they know it's unpopular. And finally, well, I will just say this: when we did a story on this. Um, uh, it was, uh, in, and we put it on Instagram. It was censored as as being false because they said there's no there's no they're not trying to ban gas stoves, and of course they are. And and you have Instagram censoring us for saying it. They'll probably censor our conversation, Brigham. We'll see. I hope not. <laughs> we'll try. We'll put it on Instagram and dare them to stop us from telling the truth, Brigham. Great to see you. Uh, thanks very much for that. It was very Thank enlightening. You. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on, Steve. Great conversation there. What a great pleasure I've, it is for me. I always find it so um, brilliant to have people on who know what they're talking about and can make us uh, better informed and smarter. That's what we try and do here. Uh, make sure you follow us on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you back here soon for the next episode of the Steve Wilson Show.